no doubt heard of the small town known as Lake Placid. It's where the miracle on ice took place on February 22, 1980. 8,500 people packed the Herb Brooks Arena, while millions more watched at home as USA defeated the Soviet Union in a medal round game 4-3. This was not the first time Lake Placid hosted the Winter Olympics. In 1932, the small town became the game's third host. The U.S. won 12 medals that year, followed by Norway with 10, and a total of 14 games. One year later, a woman would disappear on the lake and wouldn't resurface again for another 30 years. Mabel Smith Douglas was a pioneer for women's education. She was born in February of 1877 to Dutch colonial ancestors. She maintained an upper-middle-class upbringing, and it's believed that it played a major role in her push for women's education. She believed strongly that women could bring differing perspectives to non-traditional work at the time, and as chairwoman of the New Jersey State Federation of Women's Clubs Committee, used persistence and her conservative views to help establish the first women's college, the New Jersey College for Women, later named Douglas College for its first dean, Mabel Smith Douglas. Despite her success, Miss Douglas suffered from severe depression, and it appeared that tragedy followed her and her family. In 1916, her husband, William Shipman Douglas, passed away prematurely at a time when Mabel Douglas was pushing hard to establish the college. She understandably stepped away for a period of time before the college was opened in 1918. In 1923, Death would rock the Douglas family again. This time, her son William took his own life while attending New Brunswick High School. Despite this, Mabel Smith continued her work as dean of the College for Women until a mental breakdown forced her to step away in 1930. She announced her formal resignation in May of 1933, checking into a sanatorium in Cross Point, New York. She was there only a few short months, but during that time had mysteriously broken her arm with no explanation. But once she was healed, retreated to Camp Onondaga on Lake Placid. Mabel Douglas felt like the serenity the Adirondacks offered was just what she needed, and her daughter Edith stated that her mother's mental health greatly improved while at the camp. On September 21, 1933, Mabel Smith Douglas announced to her family that she was going out to look at the foliage around 1.30 that afternoon. Aside from a few eyewitnesses that had seen her rowing on the lake, she was never seen again. Mabel's daughter, Edith, phoned police shortly after 4.30 p.m., and an extensive search of the woods and the lake was conducted. It didn't take investigators long to find the capsized remains of Mabel Douglas's boat near Pulpit Rock, so named for its stone walls that rise above, ready for a church sermon. They dragged the lake for a number of days, and even dropped dynamite in the hopes that it would free her body from the depths of Lake Placid. Sadly, her body was never found, and she was presumed dead by accidental drowning. And unfortunately, the tragedy for the Douglas family wouldn't end here. Edith's husband was killed in a plane crash. 
1948, she called a minister to her New York City apartment. It's unclear why she called him to the apartment, but during their conversation, she excused herself and leapt to her death from a window. Many call the Douglas family cursed, but it's more likely that genetics are to play here. But it was nearly 30 years to the day that the mystery of what happened to Mabel Smith Douglas was, well, kind of solved. On September 15th, 1963, two divers had plunged into Lake Placid from the Sea Witch, a 32-foot excursion boat. James Rogers and Richard Niffinger were part of a diving club called the Lake Champlain Wreck Raiders. Frank Paps, the owner of the Sea Witch, invited the group to explore the lake before he relocated his boat to Lake Champlain. Under the water, the two divers followed the cliff wall of Pulpit Rock. Soon they discovered the wreck of an old guideboat, but when they reached the murky bottom of the Lake Placid, what they found startled them. At first they thought it was a department store mannequin, but when one of the men pulled the arm, they quickly discovered that this wasn't a mannequin at all, but a perfectly preserved body. The autopsy results were shocking. They had to open her up with a buck saw because these great waters of Lake Placid had permeated the tissue to such a level that the tissue formed like a, like a, uh, a wax-like callow substance where, the, where skin and, and exterior tissue was. But all of her internal organs were just as pink and healthy as if she'd have died five minutes earlier. The arm detached from the rest of the body, and there was another unusual feature that threw the men for a loop. The body had a rope tied around its neck with a large weight on the end of it. And it was this feature that would ignite a great deal of speculation around the nature of Mabel Douglas's death. When Mabel's body made contact with the surface, her face and eyes sloughed off and into the lake around them. The men struggled to lift the body into the boat and struggled to keep themselves from vomiting, but they managed and flagged a nearby boat to contact the sheriff's office. In 1963, Mabel Smith Douglas's body became an Adirondack legend that remains as mysterious as the day it was found. It's unclear whether she died due to accidental drowning, suicide, or murder, but many have speculated in each camp. And for the story of Mabel Smith Douglas, it does not end here. Soon after the discovery of the body, stories of a misty female form lingering around the waters near Pulpit Rock were reported by boaters and campers alike. A body disturbed, never able to rest. The Adirondacks have many legends like this. Spirits of the mountains held in tragedy, forever to dwell near the site of their deaths. On this episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast, you will meet our most infamous spirits and the homes they haunt. The spirits of the mountains and the ladies of the lakes. That's right, we have more than one. Welcome to this final episode of the year. Welcome to the Adirondacks.
My hometown, Saranac Lake, was first settled by Europeans in 1819. By the mid-1870s, the town became a haven for those diagnosed with tuberculosis, or consumption as they used to call it. Dr. Edward Livingston Trudeau was drawn to the area in 1873 after being diagnosed with the disease himself. He believed the fresh mountain air added in his recovery, and he soon established a medical practice in the town to treat patients afflicted by the disease. And if you tour the town today, you can find many houses with open-air porches on them, some bearing plaques from the local historical society, declaring them local landmarks. Many flocked to Saranac Lake in the hopes of a cure for the disease, and one of those people was Robert Louis Stevenson. Author of Treasure Island and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Stevenson moved into the Baker Cottage and lived there from October 1887 to April of 1888. The cottage was built by Adirondack guide Andrew Baker, and that was where he and his wife lived well into their 80s. They were predeceased by all of their children when Stevenson purchased the property in 1887. The property was later purchased by the Stevenson Society of America in 1920 and exists as a museum, housing many of the Scottish author's personal belongings. Many who walk through the museum today tend to feel an overwhelming sense of sadness, but the most pervasive spirit is Mr. Quizzy. A man by the name of Quizzell used to own a bait shop and had opened up a zoo next door to it. He used to live next door to the Stevenson Cottage, and one day, when the current caretaker of the building, Mike Delahant, needed a coffee pot, he borrowed an old one the neighbors had that had, at one point, belonged to old Quizzy. On one particular day, the coffee pot flew off the stove and onto the floor. This was long after Mike had replaced the busted coffee pot, but the message was clear. It was time to bring the old coffee pot back home. We have no title deeds to house or lands. Owners and occupants of earlier dates, from graves forgotten, stretch their dusty hands, and hold in Mortman still their old estates. The spirit world around this world of sense floats like an atmosphere, and everywhere wafts through these earthly mists and vapors, dense a vital breath of more ethereal air. These are the words of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow from a poem titled Haunted Houses. In 1849, abolitionist John Brown moved from Springfield, Massachusetts to North Elba, New York, purchasing land from fellow abolitionist Garrett Smith. He taught African-American families to farm parcels of land that had been granted to families by Smith, and Brown named the community Timbuktu, for the African city of learning. Living was hard for those that settled there. Harsh winters, meager supplies, and ample taxes made for difficult living. But Brown's family grew to call the place home. In 1855, John Brown left for Kansas to fight pro-slavery forces, and four years later was arrested at Harper's Ferry in a failed raid for weapons and was hanged. 
John Brown's body is interred at his home in North Elba, and his house is preserved as a historic site. The Browns left the farm and moved to California at the start of the Civil War. The farm was ceded to the Hughes family, who farmed the land until the property was given to New York State. The Hughes' son, Billy, was struck by lightning and killed while working the fields one morning, and his spirit has never left. Billy has been seen at the foot of the cellar stairs, bathed in a red aura, staring up at those who would look down. His form has been seen by many visitors to the farm, from the living room and in various other parts of the homestead. Before Billy Hughes was killed by lightning, John Brown's daughter-in-law, Martha, died in childbirth, and so too did her daughter, Olivia, a few days later. It's said that Martha's spirit rocks a chair upstairs, and it can be heard from the first floor. In the central Adirondack region lies the small town of Brant Lake, which offers a pristine boating experience as well as top-notch fishing. In the winter, the frozen lakes and surrounding hillside become roads for snowmobilers and skiers alike. At the summit of Graphite Mountain sits a long and abandoned house that is overgrown with foliage and legend. In the early 1900s, a mysterious man purchased the house, which sits not far from an old schoolhouse. He was reclusive, choosing not to socialize with the residents of the town. When he went into town for supplies, he drove a wagon pulled by two white horses. The sight of the man often frightened the residents of Brant Lake, being a fear of the unknown. On one Halloween, a group of boys observed the strange man returning home from a trip. They surprised the horses jumping out in front of them, and the startled animals, ignoring their master's call, led the carriage off the side of the road and into a rocky outcrop. The horses and their master died instantly. The house reverted to the man's family and quickly earned a reputation as being haunted. A couple wanted to purchase the house a few years later, but the family was reticent to sell. They struck up a deal. Live here for a year, and if all seemed well, they would sell, no problem. The couple did, and on the day the contract was signed, the spirit arrived. It was 5 p.m., a sound carried on the wind, hooves clattering over an open road the wheels of a carriage turning and creaking with every rotation. The apparition of horses, a carriage, and a black-suited man appeared before the couple. They chose to sell the property that month. Like themselves, they convinced the new buyers to live there for a year before signing on the dotted line. They did. They signed. And the apparition appeared to them as well. It's not clear if this tale is more cautionary than real, but the remnants of the house still sits on the summit of Graphite Mountain, and there are those that still tell the story to this day.
One of the most infamous stories I remember my family and friends discussing involves a house just outside of the Adirondacks in Fort Covington. Fort Covington sits just miles away from the Canadian border and proved to be a pivotal point during the War of 1812. On a small patch of land, just off of Route 37, is a Victorian-style mansion that earned a reputation as a meeting place for covens and as a violently haunted house. In the early 1900s, it's believed that a young woman with severe mental illness was locked in the attic by her sister. Stories like this were not uncommon during this time. Look no further than Rosemary Kennedy and the great lengths her family went to hide her from the public. It's said that the woman banged and clawed at the walls relentlessly until her fingertips were raw and bleeding. She left numerous bloody handprints on the walls, and upon her death, the homeowners attempted to cover them up with green paint. They would bleed through after every coat. Long after her death, loud pounding sounds could be heard all throughout the house, coming from the attic. And a cold spot hovers over the place where the woman took her final breath. In the following years, another tenant would earn a reputation around town as an evil witch. It is the stigma of a bygone era more than it is a judgment of character. The woman while living the life of a shut-in, was most likely a witch. But she was not unfriendly, just antisocial. It's said that her spirit makes itself known all throughout the house and the carriage house, which was a stop on the Underground Railroad, one of the last before crossing into Canada. In 1994, Jarena Dunwich felt compelled to purchase the house and soon opened an antique and new-age shop called The Country Witch. She soon established a Wiccan coven in the home, where she served as a high priestess. It wasn't long after Jarena moved into the home that she started to experience odd dreams and paranormal activity. On the first night there, she had a dream of a faceless man dressed in black. He walked through a door and offered to bring Jarena with him. She felt her death was imminent and screamed at the man, and he disappeared. When she awoke, her partner beside her did as well, claiming that it was the sound of a closing door that woke him. On another night, a friend of hers was visiting from Boston. She had nightmares as well. A faceless man in black was holding her down, while a woman in a Victorian dress was choking her. The two women performed a cleansing ritual and never saw the strange faceless man again. Lights would turn off and on in the home, as would the vacuum cleaner. On some nights, the bed covers would be pulled down to Jarena's feet. The shades would go up and down on their own. And one night, while Jarena's mother was watching the house, she claimed to hear the sound of a bowling ball or a head rolling down the stairs. Most of the activity was centered around the attic. Banging and scratching could be heard at all hours, and the infamous cold spot was always there. Jarena sold the property a few years later and moved back to California. 
Today it is a fully restored home for the developmentally disabled. Throughout paranormal lore, there are tales of the women in white, strange female specters bathed in white light that haunt the highways and back roads of many American towns. In the Adirondacks, we have the ladies in the lake. You met the first one at the beginning of this episode, but its most infamous one can be found at Big Moose Lake. On the morning of July 12, 1906, Robert Morrison began his day like he did most days, tracking down the boats that were never returned the day before. It was not as rare an occurrence as he'd like. The winds on the lake were particularly strong in the center, and for amateurs that rented his skiffs, the winds were often too strong. Those that rented them often abandoned them on nearby shores and walked back to the Glenmore Hotel. Morrison had rented a skiff out to a young man the day before, who was clearly from the city. He was short, but had an athletic build. He was dressed in a suit and a tie, and with him was a woman wearing a green skirt and white shirt, and she also carried a black jacket. She appeared to be distraught. Tears rolled down her face, but the man, who registered his name as Carl Graham, said that they were determined to have a good time. He promised to have the skiff back by supper time. The most odd thing about the man was his insistence that he bring his luggage with him. It was a singular suitcase with a tennis racket strapped to the side. He claimed to have their lunch inside of it, but Morrison had never seen anything like that before. Morrison set out with his daughter-in-law, Florence, and her sister, Grace Lucy, to find the boat. Morrison was met by the jeers of local residents, warning him to be careful about who he rented to. At the southern end of South Bay, an overturned skiff floated undisturbed 40 feet from shore. A straw hat and magazine floated in the water, and spread over the keel was the woman's black jacket. They pulled all these items on board. Pinned to the jacket were a pair of water lilies, and several more were found in her coat pockets. Morrison turned the boat back over and began towing the skiff to a nearby boat named the Zilpha. The Zilpha was a small steamship that trucked mail to the nearby camps and gave guided tours of the lake and the nearby camps. Together with 18 individuals spread among the skiffs and the boat, a search party ensued to look for the couple, whom they feared drowned in the lake. The skiffs found other stray items floating in the water, but mere feet from where the Zilpha laid anchored. James Higby, the boat's owner, spotted a form in the water. He was confident it was a body, and minutes later, engineer Frank Crabb pulled the body of a young woman from the water using a pole originally designed for logging work. Morrison recognized the woman immediately as the distraught one 
whom he'd rented a skiff to the day before, with the man in the suitcase. Once her body was laid on the deck, blood began to run from her nose. Her skin was yellow, and her eyes were half-opened and bloodshot. There was a cut on her lip, and an injury to her head as well. They continued to search for the man, but they didn't believe for a second they would find him. From the outset, they believed the woman had been murdered. Back at the Glenmore, the registry bore the names Carl Graham from Albany and Grace Brown from South Otselik. They soon discovered that his name wasn't really Carl Graham, but Chester Gillette. Gillette was born in 1883 in a mining camp in Wicks, Montana. Raised under a strict Christian upbringing, his parents Frank and Louise Gillette became missionaries with the Salvation Army and moved from post to post in the Pacific Northwest, going as far as Hawaii. As he got older, Chester became infatuated with high society life, as the morals of the Victorian era fell away from a society that was mobilizing upward due to the rise in technology. He attended Oberlin Academy, a prep school in Ohio, but he would eventually flunk out due to poor grades. A couple years later, he was offered a job as a clerk at his uncle's skirt factory in Cortland, New York, and it was there on the factory floor of the Gillette Skirt Factory that he met Grace Brown. Grace was from the small town of Otselik, where she was raised on a farm. In 1904, she left the farm for factory work, and about a year later met Chester Gillette. Grace had been looking for romance, but for Chester, it was all about sex. They would meet at the boarding house Chester was living in, and would wait for his boarders to retire for the night before engaging in sexual acts. It was around this time that Chester was starting his upward climb, receiving invitations to social events. He dated women and saw Grace on the side. Chester Gillette tried to live two lives, but they would quickly catch up with him. In the spring of 1906, Grace announced that she was pregnant, and believed that she was pushing Chester to marry her. But for Chester, all he could think about was his social status. He convinced Grace to leave Cortland for a while, assuming that Grace might just disappear. He continued to attend social events, while Grace began to write letters. It's clear from them that she was distraught and alone. She loved Chester, even if he didn't love her. In the letters she wrote, My dear Chester, I have often heard the saying, It never rains, but it pours but I never knew what that meant until today. Everything worries me, and I am so frightened, dear. It won't make any difference to you about your coming a few days earlier than you intended, will it, dear? It means so much to me. Chester, do you miss me, and have you thought about everything today? Please write often, and in every one of your letters, I wish you would tell me not to worry about your not coming for me. If only you were here, dear. I am so blue." 
What words have I had from you since I came home to encourage me? You tell me not to worry and think less about how I feel and have a good time. Don't you think if you were me, you would worry? And as for thinking less about how I feel, when one is ill all the time, some days not able to go downstairs, one naturally thinks about oneself and the good times. My dear Chester, I cannot help worrying about your letters. Of course, when I don't hear from you, I imagine you have gone away. I think another week would kill me, dear. Thank heaven I won't always have to live like this. You have no idea how badly I feel. I was awfully glad I had your letter first, though. I hope you will have a nice time, the fourth, dear, for you ought to have. I don't mind staying here alone. That is, not so very much. I shall be alone all day. Don't you wish you were going to be here? Won't you forgive me? I do so wish I could die. Is it wicked to want to die? My head aches and I'm so blue. She would often sign her letters as the kid. And in one of them, she threatened Chester, claiming to come forward with her pregnancy. My dear Chester, I am writing to tell you that I am coming back to Cortland. I simply can't stay here any longer. Mama worries and wonders why I cry so much, and I'm just about sick. Please come and take me away to some place, dear. I came up home this morning, and I just can't help crying all the time, just as I did that night. My headache is dreadful tonight, and I'm afraid you won't come. I'm so frightened, my dear. On July 9th, 1906, he invited Grace on a trip to the Adirondacks. She told him ahead of time that she couldn't swim in a letter written ten days earlier. They began their journey into Reuter by train and stayed in many hotels along the way to Big Moose Lake, where the act of murder was committed. From the start, everyone suspected him of doing the deed. Witnesses came forward claiming to see Gillette walking down a road, carrying his suitcase late in the afternoon. Another witness claimed to hear an odd sound at around 6 o'clock that evening that she dismissed as a bird, but believed could have been Grace. Chester registered at the Arrowhead Inn, where he canoed and hiked for two days before the authorities caught up with him. Chester, strangely, was a cool customer, and would remain cool during his entire trial. He showed no emotion at all, and his prison diaries revealed that he showed no remorse either. The case became one of the earliest to use circumstantial evidence in the courtroom, and while Grace was gone, she certainly had a life of her own in the room, as her letters were read during the trial. In a bold move, the prosecutor, George Ward, chose to bring the preserved body of Grace's unborn child into the courtroom, which sparked furor on all sides. This was the trial of the century at the time. Chester was convicted of first-degree murder, and at the time of sentencing, with no emotion on his face, Chester was sentenced to die by electrocution. 
While Grace Brown had been alive in the courtroom, her spirit is said to endure at Big Moose Lake. Their earliest report goes back to 1909, where it was said on Black Pond a mysterious skiff appeared, occupied by a man and woman, on a number of moonlit nights. In the 1990s, author and consultant Linda Lee Mackin was vacationing on Big Moose Lake at the Covewood Lodge. Once on an evening walk, Linda and her friend Bridget were talking in a nearby gazebo when they saw a misty form floating near South Bay. It was a woman, and Linda described an intense feeling of sadness coming from her. She was able to identify the woman as Grace Brown from photos that she viewed the next day. Rhonda Boussalot worked at the Covewood Lodge for a number of years. After watching a movie with friends at the main lodge, she returned to her cabin. She felt a presence and claimed to see a form hovering in the room. She called out to her co-workers who were still outside and would later claim to see a woman out of the window who dispersed into a cloud of mist. The subject of Grace Brown became the basis of a segment on Unsolved Mysteries in 1995. Her spirit has been seen by many people around Big Moose Lake over the years, but it begs the question, why do spirits linger? Are they simply an interactive memorial plaque stuck in a moment of time? Or do they require something that the living can somehow grant to them? Every Halloween, we are reminded that there is a world near ours, that we may not see every day, but catch glimpses of when the time is right. Perhaps those glimpses are all that will remain when all that is written disintegrates and all life has left us. This episode was written and recorded by me, with research assistance from Isabel Hamilton and John Nary. Special thanks to Emily Phipps for providing her voice to the letters of Grace Brown. This episode marks the last of the year for the Our Strange Guys podcast, but don't worry, we'll be back on New Year's Day with a brand new episode. If you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Another way you can support us is by becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons receive access to special bonus episodes and early access to the regular episodes when available. Visit patreon.com slash ourstrangeguys to find out how to become a patron today. We also have a website, ourstrangeguys.com. There, you can find the show notes, links to our social media and T public pages, as well as our blog. Our theme song is composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. Finally, 
don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies, or in the lakes and mountains in your own backyard. In the Adirondacks, we trust.